0: a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest-growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll.
1: Welcome to Breaking Banks Europe, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. This is episode 190, News from the Fintech Front. I'm Elizabeth Kleinfeld, and this is our monthly look at the fintech space in August 2023. And today I've got Connie Dorstein and Don Ginzel here with me. Could you please introduce yourselves?
2: Thank you. Should I go first, um... (sighs) Don? Of course, in yes. ever gallons. Uh, so, my name is Connie uh, I'm a fintech entrepreneur, both in a corporate sense as uh, having been a co founder of the company, uh, but lately I've been uh, primarily uh, known for my non executive work at, uh, as chair at CoBase, multi bank payment hub provider. And uh, interestingly, for this podcast, probably I'm on the supervisory board of uh, Augmented Fintech PLC sort of Europe's only listed um, VC uh, dedicated to the fintech space. So, delighted to be with you today. Delighted to have you. Don, the
1: floor is yours.
3: Yeah, it was great to be uh, together with you on the show, uh, Connie uh, and uh, Elizabeth. Um, So, my name is Don Ginsel. I'm the founder and CEO of Holland Fintech, and uh, I try to uh, maintain wherever fintech is involved. Uh, I'm especially keen on uh, spurring uh, financial uh, inclusion, as well as financial literacy, I truly believe there's a lot to win by making people understand technology, both in Europe as well as outside of that. So that's where I uh, try to mend in, in all kinds of different initiatives. And uh, happy to talk about that today as well, Lelis.
1: Well, definitely happy to have you speaking about that. Let's see. The The first thing that I'd like to work on or look at is the what's happening in the venture space in terms of fintech and the first half of 2023. So if we can yeah. start with uh, Connie and then Don, um, go to you to add on some things, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, well, obviously, you know, we're all still sort of enjoying the lull and the, the, the final bit of our summer holidays, but we're all looking uh, with anticipation and maybe a little bit of anxiety here and there ahead of the, the next, the second half year to come. But what I found interesting is I took some time over the summer to compare some of the uh, numbers and events in Europe versus the uh, US. And um, as we know, you know, the last few years, the valuations were riskly high. We had a lot of correction we've seen, but I think it's also, and this is what you're beginning to see, it's a beautiful opportunity to ride off some risky bad investments and open it up again for inflow of new capital at realistic levels um, in the months to come. And I think in particular, in the second half year, we'll see some um, startups, but also some sort of starting growth up uh, companies coming back, looking for money um, because the runways are now closing in. And so I think we'll see some activity again uh, at uh, more realistic levels definitely coming in uh the change in investor capital is a global thing but what we really see is that the gap between the us and uh, europe is uh, closing the us um, investments over the first half year nearly half compared to the year before and in the in the eu that was more or less the same uh, level um but on average, the EU has, percentage-wise, been more actively investing still in the first uh, half year. And the, the drop-down is visible around Europe and, in the, you know, of course, mostly in the most active markets. So you see, for instance, that tech as a whole dropped by nearly 57% in the UK, uh, 44% in Germany. And funny enough, and this will be music to Don's ears, uh, in the Netherlands, it's sort of more or less evened out. It's more, we're, we're actually back sort of at the levels that we saw a year ago. And and Don might have some more on that. Uh, and obviously, sadly enough as well, uh, we laid off more people in the first half of 2023 than we did in the whole year in 2022. And not just in fintech, but in tech globally around, you know, 185,000 people lost their job. But again, only 6% of that number was in Europe. And it... All of those signs go towards the saying that whereas, you know, we were a little bit the ridicule and the sad patient people in Europe for many, many years, this is now something that's obviously, um, you know, this tepid, cautious animal in fintech that's now all, uh, you know, um, paying off, I think. And um, in Europe still, we see a very resilient early stage pipeline um at forty-five percent at, at this moment of the sort of full last year. Um and and um we saw a drop of of course in the startups. Uh, so startups quite a lot less, 15% in Europe, 20% less in the US. But again, the founders are more mature, and that's uh, that. It all goes to the same mantra, but now we're seeing those numbers. We mm-hmm. see more repeat founders or operational members of um, previous startups. So, you know, uh, as I said, the, you know, the the runways start to narrow now. So we'll see more people coming. To Great, it'd be a very interesting second half. So
1: John had mentioned some things mm-hmm. um, in the fintech insights on on Friday, about um, more, you know uh, investors wanting to see less growth, but more profitability. Can you talk to that Don?
3: Yeah, of course. I think uh, generally, I really recognise what Connie is saying uh, in the sense that uh, Europe has always been much more conservative than the, than the US, both on valuations as uh, spent amounts uh, size. But that also means they have to push to, pull the handbrake much less uh, uh, rigorously than uh, than in the US. So I think that's from that perspective, we're on a more positive side now. Uh, nonetheless, you do see that quite some companies that were heavily dependent on growth capital do need to scale down uh, to actually look for profitability, uh, especially since the funding climate just has become more uncertain. So I think most companies are trying to uh, uh, create a longer runway by just reducing staff and sort of uh, tuning down their emissions slightly. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, it's quite sad that we do see the tech uh, tech community therefore actually being a bit under pressure. Uh, however, I think we do see that still quite some companies are also looking for talent to a to a very large extent. And there's a big shortage still, I think, uh, across the board. Yeah. Um, I
2: think what we saw as well, Don, to your theme around um tightening the belt a little bit. Um, particularly neobanks, I think, Uh, I I checked it out and we spoke to quite a few uh, VCs. And they all said, you know, with neobanks and the people who have high marketing expenditure, we're really looking for profitability. And and so the smaller, uh, say, neobanks will have uh, a tough time unless they serve a very niche (laughs) uh, market with a very, very loyal following. Um, But neobanks really need to look for profitability. And there you see that the larger ones who are, you know, either have a long runway or are doing quite well are now, of course, on the acquisition path because they want to add some maybe some lending, maybe some insurance capability, um, you know, maybe some investment capability or rewards. So I think neo banks will probably see a bit of a shakeout, buyout consolidation.
3: I totally agree. There, you see, of course, that a lot of the neo banks were a winner-takes-all strategy. Right? Uh, let's let's see who can grow the fastest, and they will make money. But everything else, let's say all the runners-up would be in the in the problem area, uh, and of course now that that actually game has come to a stop to a certain extent, as the the free money is not available anymore, and so they're indeed they're looking for either uh, reducing cost or uh, additional business models, and so they begin, that's also why they begin to look more and more like regular banks, uh, because that they, they just need to try to dive into any kind of opportunity to make a revenue as they can. So that's quite interesting as well. And I see actually the consolidation part and MA, what you're mentioning. I also see that happening across also a lot of other industries uh, in payments, for example, but also in the uh, rec tech space. You see that in some cases uh, where there were a lot of uh, I think, especially when we had the Cambrian explosion of fintech companies in, uh, let's say, 2017 to 19, um, I think you see that a lot of these companies now are actually—they're not all going to make it—and <clears throat> since investments are becoming more hard, uh, a lot of them are looking for strategic opportunities actually now, which is especially with lower valuations also becoming much more interesting for strategic buyers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I read, uh, Don, that you'd put in the newsletter was about also the valuations in LATAM um, going down in the fintech space, you know, 20 to 40%. And um, I think that that's probably across the board, these valuations have gone down.
3: Yeah, you definitely see quite some regional differences. Uh, I know that, for example, in Latin America, uh, there's a lot of Political pressure always also playing quite a role in the amount of foreign investment willing to come in uh, and invest locally. I think that's in any case one of the challenges that they have, where also uh, a lot of the money, for example, that focuses on financial inclusion is actually also very often being pushed away from that continent because of mismanagement on the political side. Um, but at the same time, you see actually that there are the, uh, on the fintech side, they're actually only catching up with some really uh, um, fast growing neo banks, for example, that are actually setting example uh for example in brazil with nubank so some yeah. of those are actually also really uh only now coming into play so i think there you really see probably also if you look at it country by country that also the valuations there can show quite a big delta
1: yeah absolutely and connie you had mentioned about um this new fund in the uk you want to tell us about that growth
2: i think i think that that's interesting uh obviously you know the um Uh, The UK had, uh, in 2022, they... Um, they basically said, let's do a good fundamental review of the fintech space. Uh, London was the hotbed of fintech in Europe. And they were worried, slightly worried about the positioning of the city in the post text era. And so it ordered the so-called uh, Khalifa review, with, uh, Don Khalifa uh, orchestrated. And, and in fact, actually, for anybody interested in fintech, the report is a marvellous read. It's a very, very well-researched uh, piece of uh, of information and it, it's it's a very interesting read, um, but basically what I saw was is uh, that although the UK was was big in uh, sort of startup capital and startups, growth venture was stalling, and we spoke about it briefly before. And many founders, many many more founders than in the US, would go to a strategic sale, pre-IPO or pre-unicorn status. Now. Uh, What the report doesn't say and what is still a thought on my mind is it's often also a very good choice of uh, people who say, you know, I'm well-suited to do... uh, a company to start a company and to grow it to a few hundred people. But am I unicorn material? Do I want to be that big? You know, so it could also be a strategic option. But they felt sorry about that. They said, you know, many of the unicorns escape us. And one of the reasons was people said, uh, came out of the research, that um, the, the Series B to uh, IPO-type capital was limitedly available. And they even spoke of about a $2 billion funding gap. And so they, as a result, the FinTech Growth Fund, the FGF, was established um, with the aim to raise um, uh, a billion uh, sterling. And it's backed by corporate money from Barclays and, and MasterCard mm-hmm. and NetWest, but also from, you know, the Longstock Exchange Group, who obviously have uh, a very fixed interest there. Um, and the first monies they expect to be invested around uh, the fourth quarter of this year. And they want to do around four to eight investments a year between 10 and 100 million. Um, and it's very interesting but uh, because they obviously want to encourage the job market, trade as a whole. I can see all the benefits. One thing I must say with my lovingly momentum uh, hat mm-hmm. on though, as well is you can only grow unicorns in a place where people have patiently and skillfully um, learned how to grow a business. eh? And um, I think that we spoke about it before, there's less bullish investments in Europe. But it could basically mean that we have produced quite a a number of high quality, you know, growth-ready fintechs. And and what I would say is I would really, really encourage this fund to work together with specialist VCs as well, because the link must be there between early stage capital and growth stage capital, um, because you really need to embed those, you know, corporate cultures of, of you know, really early company.
3: Curious, Connie, if I, I may ask you, I have a follow on question on this as well. I'm just curious also how you see this, because um, I think to a certain extent, I mean, there's a, sometimes also a logic why certain money isn't there at certain stages. Uh, and of course, just like we're now always uh, fiddling around with the interest rates, we try to make the climate ours uh, and make it do what we want it to do, even though there's some kind of natural rhythm to it. Yeah. Uh, how would you feel about this? Uh, I mean, isn't this actually a sign that the market should cool off at this area, which are they, they're trying to counter by setting up this fund? Uh, but one of the things I'm also wondering is, is that you know most of Europe, if 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 the UK has this gap, the rest of Europe has a very big hole, basically, right? Uh, so I'm I'm also curious uh, your take on the, on the difference there on the, on the European level.
2: Yeah, and I think that there, the UK is overliving, looking uh, one thing. Um, The US has always had this natural ability because by their very nature, they have one big global market under their own footsteps. Uh, They all speak the same language, more or less the same culture, uh, and and, and a massive world to expand into. Europe, as you very well know, is still not one sort of one uh, cohesive market that if something is a success in UK, it will naturally roll out in the rest of Europe, or it will naturally go to America, because as you and I know, the, the financial system is totally different. So... As much as I encourage it and I applaud it, and I think it's also not so massively large. It sounds terrible, but $2 you know, doing 10, 12 investments is not overly zealous. Uh, But I think they will very soon look outside pure fintech and sort of embrace generative AI and other deep tech um, Mm, opportunities in that field as well. Because for pure, pure fintech to be on such a massive scale I don't think you'll have 10, 20 opportunities a year. You have to breach into other. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: So before we go on to look at, you know, the AI and and the different opportunities there, um, could you say something about Agen? Because we we saw a fall of shares, you know, of one of our big unicorns, when I say ours in the Netherlands, um, by 40% and some say it's a sign of poor climate. You you think that there's some other things going on and if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your thoughts here.
2: Yeah, well, I, I was I was called by a journalist on this and so I gave my unadulterated view on this matter and it got me some uh, interesting feedback online. I basically think, of course, 40% off is terrible, you know, it's sad. But don't forget, this is a massive company with a very profound with a very profound real market and a real product. They are not exhausting themselves in the race to the bottom. And the analysts say, Well, we want you to do it because everybody else is going, you know, down rating their prices. And they're saying, No, we're not doing that because only a percentage of our market share is in the vanilla processing in the US and that's where we do it but we have you know bigger plans for this company we're not doing it so what are you going to do then Uh, well we're not telling you yet um why are you hiring people well because the market is cheaper now we will need them well what would you need them for so basically I took it up for Ajahn and I said, you know, um, just because analysts want you to tell everything, you don't have to say it. My mom told me already very early on, no is also an answer. And um, people might not like it and they might scream lack of transparency. No, I think it is dedication to strategy. And maybe there's a little bit of a communication issue here. But I think that those guys and women, uh, know pretty well what they're doing and uh, my guess is but you know don't bite me my guess is they're going to build value around the masses of data they have and they're going to help the CFOs of the big platform and e-commerce partners they serve with much better integration to the back office system and more insights in that data but that's my guess so you know <clears throat> it's what it's worth
3: yeah uh, I know it's it's quite hard to actually get a good grip on the inside and strategy of Adyen uh, at this stage, but I, I do agree as well that to a certain extent what you see is that they're just not willing to go for the short-term uh, shareholder satisfaction, which I think is giving them currently the discount, uh, right? And I, th- I think we should also realize that they've been actually they, – they didn't fall as much as others did uh, when the tech got a big discount since, uh, since the interest rates went up. They've been on the high level relatively yeah. quite stably – uh, over the past uh, past year, uh, and I think it's only now that I think people are putting them more in valuations uh, in line with the other companies. Uh, so I think it was it was a bit of an inflation that was still in the price. At the same time, I do agree with Connie that uh, uh, there's there might just be some communication issues as well, and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry so much about the long term here uh, from the, from what it's, I see. It's
2: it's really interesting because if you go in against the grain like Ali does at Bank and some other people doing the Neo space. The people at that Gen have always done it. In good times, you're applauded as an exemplary leader who has its own sort of, you know, uh, mindset and attitude. And in bad luck times, you criticize because you're not alarming and you're not following, you know, what people expect you no. to do. So mm-hmm. I think that's quite ironic. <laughs>
1: And that is one thing in a way that I like about Europe better than the U.S. in terms of patient capital. You know, like the minute some people see uh, those numbers fall, they're going to want to get rid of it. But if you stay in for the long term and believe that they've been doing the right thing, then maybe you're going to have some upside um, in the long run. Right.
2: Yeah. And value prices can be set on a per second basis but value. Is not created instantly. I mean, not no. in personal relationships and not in business, you know, it takes time. So let's look at another
1: area. You, you guys, um, touched upon it a little bit, the, the AI segment and, uh, Don, you had mentioned, um, in, in that last insights about how we're at this kind of hype tipping mm-hmm. point. Yep. Can you say something about
3: that? Yeah, exactly. I I always uh, really like the way that Gartner sort of uh, plots uh, the rise and fall of technologies across this hype cycle. Uh, And you see that generative AI, uh, what of course everybody knows from ChatGPT, uh, for example... Uh, is really at the top of the hype cycle, which generally means that you come to this point where everybody talks about it. Everybody is very much driven by FOMO to want to do investments, projects, uh, or everything. Right? You're 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 falling behind if you're not participating. Uh, and this kind of uh, feeling that people have that they're missing out, uh, I think, is is yeah, always creates this crazy market. So you see, indeed, uh, everything that sounds like AI smells like AI is going uh, still still getting a crazy valuations loads of money uh and uh, you know all students now want to become an ai engineer or whatever that means uh and i think that's quite interesting to to see keep on following that of course what this hype cycle normally also says is that you know there will be at some point a normalized point where these technologies will actually be embedded in everything but at least the buzz will have stopped and we won't talk about it as much right just like the internet or fintech or everything else i uh, think that you see uh, happening around us yeah um But there's a big potential, right? So I think that's one of the interesting parts. Uh, If you look at the the latest developments, especially with the rise of generative AI, I think AI has become much more appealing to the general audience. And that means that not just common people, but actually also managers of uh, all kinds of institutions suddenly get what they can do with something like this. And I think that sparks a big drive uh, in this occasion.
2: Yeah, what's interesting, Don, was that I checked on the sort of the again a bit of the, on the amounts, and in fact, financial services is seriously lagging behind in investing, uh, uh, sort of in solutions in, uh, for financial institutions around AI. And indeed, generative AI is oh, that's all the, the rave. And also, a lot of um, we saw a lot of inflow for early stage companies in climate and environmental tech that uh, deploy AI. And what I found interesting is I spoke to a few uh, bankers and people all say, exactly what you said, we're in trials, we're trying, we're doing things. And of course, we can all see the huge potential, for instance, in in fraud prevention eh, by using AI models, much better than using processes and checking stuff I did 10 years ago. But at the same time, of course, bankers are also worried because they say the regulators haven't taken a stance on this yet. And you know, if we don't know how well we can trust the data models, then we don't know how well they perform. So it's, it's very early days. And in that light, probably it was fun, uh, and I'm sure you saw it in the news this morning, to see that the high courts in Holland um, again agreed with Bank and said, yes, you should get your knuckles rubbed for not having your fraud processes a few years ago, totally up to scrap. But we do agree with you that you should be entitled to use new me- methodologies and new technologies to uh, do fraud prevention. Yep. And, and not maybe to, to, sum- to summarize that. Private processes that the DMB and uh, the central bank has described. So I think that's a promising yeah. first sign where we're opening up. And um, But again, yeah, it's early days. I mean, how good are the data sets? We don't know. Um I think in support, in customer support, you see a lot of... Um, I saw a very interesting example, the Finnish bank, where they're using customer support and AI and not sort of make the digital support better because digital support is lousy, as we all know, on all fronts, uh, but to improve the interaction between humans and that then with the ultimate goal of replacing the human. And so I thought that that was interesting because we could all do, yeah. I think, with better customer support.
1: <laughs> I also saw a part in one of those articles, Don, that you had um, put together where Moody's was being able to replace some of those lower level um, analysts by sifting out false positives and hmm. being able to create this kind of rating um, where you could alert score between zero and one where if it was closer to one, then you're going to decide to, you know, focus your compliance department looking at those higher risk areas.
3: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. But you do see as well is that we're... Uh, um Let's say the technology is there, and I think it's, it's been already there for, for quite a while, but I think it's now more just getting a bit more attention. Um, but one of the biggest challenges now, which I think is also very much being sparked, is uh, the whole governance of these models. So the, the challenge is, and I think we've seen already quite some uh, debates about uh, the use of AI popping up, where actually not the use of AI was the problem, but actually the, the, the conclusions that humans drew from the system. Right, So we had, for example, a Dutch tax system uh, that were chasing certain, uh, for example, double nationality citizens uh, because the AI model produced them as potentially risk, risky uh, factors for uh, being fraudulent with certain um, uh, tax applications. Actually, the model wasn't wrong, but the people that were actually going into persecution had to check. Before exactly. they went to prosecute, for example, and not take the model uh, results <laughs> for granted, uh, because you actually then, if you do that, you actually come back to the to, to the basic fundamentals of discrimination, as in, you know, I see a certain color and I assume that that goes with certain characteristics, uh, and that's of course how data also works, uh, and that's I think one of the things that we're really looking forward to, to with I think and I'm, I'm really happy with the fact that the debate has 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 been firing up across the board. About how to explain how models work, how to govern them properly, how to register when they're being used, how they're being used, and I think that's that's a really important factor. I think of these days uh, and also rising with popularity of AI uh, to make it much easier for policymakers also to really start thinking about this, because it creates a new world to a certain extent that we and actually we're already living in this world, but the rules haven't caught up yet.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> And Don, how do you feel about AI in the field of advice? Because um, I think that's a very uh, scary thing because we always see that the people who need advice the most in general are the least, say, um, profitable for banks. So they're the people who need advice the most are easiest, you know, budge to digital models, eh? like you need a yep. mortgage. Indeed. It's about 150k. Oh well, boom, off to the digital zone. Yeah. Um, and I'm just worried that um, about consumer protection. If we just let models lose on the, on an advice uh, system,
3: I, I I get your point. I'm, um, it's a very uneven battle. I think uh, from that perspective between the models and the people. I I wouldn't be so worried so much about doing that from a financial perspective because the marketeers are already in this game. So uh, the models are already winning and steering people to do things that they shouldn't be doing anyway. Uh, And it's not framed as a financial advice, but getting people to spend money on brands they don't need, I think that's already financial advice. Uh, that they shouldn't get. So from a marketing perspective, people are losing out already. And I think the financial side could potentially bring that more in balance. Yes, there's also a risk to that, that these advices are not well-fed, not well-founded. And so I think we should definitely look into how we can optimize that and have a good oversight over these kind of processes. Uh, But I'm much more worried actually on the non-financial side where non-regulated entities are actually nudging people to do all kinds of stuff from gambling to spending to lending to everything where there's no control at all
2: yeah I, i'm worried about that too um if we... Russia, i shall have to give up my day job then as a what do you call it sort of uh, one of those people on tiktok who are making recommendations <laughs> the fi- yeah. a different persona <laughs>
3: right influencer yeah
1: influence yeah oh. Don, when you were talking about, you know, how there needs to be more transparency in these models so that we don't have these biases that discriminate against people, there's also ways to, to use it to be more financially inclusive, mm-hmm. right? Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that?
3: So th- there's different ways on that. So it depends. Um, um, on one end, you could argue that uh, nowadays, everywhere where there's a phone, people could have a bank account or have financial services and consume them and use it to pay, use it to have an overview of their finances, where before, uh, and I think still that happens in certain regions in the world where you still need to go to a physical branch, for example, to get access to financial services, you might not be able to do that because it's too far away or you might be excluded from that in another way. Um, So from that perspective, the, the fact that the infrastructure has become so much more open allows more people to participate. At the same time, we should also realize that once you start building these products and services data-driven, you might also draw the wrong conclusions to exclude certain people. Uh, and I think this is something that has partly a regulatory side as well as a technical or commercial side. So, for example, take insurances, right? There are certain agreements in legislation where you, for example, uh, insurers are not allowed to refuse a new applicant. Yeah. Right. And so these kind of rules are really important because if you would actually leave it to the market, they might actually filter out the worst risks, uh, which might be a nice idea for the ones that are getting accepted. But of course, people that can't get an insurance could potentially be confronted with very serious risks that they need to insure. So actually having the rules then comply with that. So, for example, so for insurers, it's not that much uh, worth to actually invest in, um, for example, making A.I., helping them make a better selection of applicants because they're not allowed to make a selection. What they can do now is actually focus on, for example, finding fraud, uh, making more efficient handling of insurances or or those. That could help drive the price down and that could also make things more inclusive. Um, In not all jurisdictions, I think that the same rules apply. So actually... In some cases where, uh, for example, like the uh, every applicant is equal kind of regulation doesn't exist, you might end up in financial exclusion due to the data that's available. Uh, the same goes, for example, for credit scoring, right? So uh, in some countries, uh, you have uh, no credit score. Uh, you actually have a case-by-case application. And based on your income, your assets, uh, whatever, and, and the purpose of your loan, you might get the loan yes or no in other cases you have a credit scoring model where you have a, a, a score with you and you can't get rid of it unless you actually perform well under a loan which is a really complicated situation to get out under it's it's hard for people to get into that system because they don't have a credit score to start with and once they get a bad credit score it's really hard to get rid of it it's okay. right it carries along with them uh, and so these kind of cases you could actually use much more data to improve their credit score or give them access to credit. But again, the problem actually isn't technical, it's regulatory. Are you allowed to do that as a lender?
2: Yeah, it's regulatory. And I saw a very interesting um, uh, documentary, I think it was on the BBC this weekend, and it was about really the core of AI. And the scientists so said that if you really want to learn from AI, you should. Adversely, start with smaller data sets because then you can check how well the data performed. And I thought about that because I recently a, was on, a, on a, a judging panel and we were looking at uh, AI generative financial services projects. And an interesting one was Moo Credit, Moo from the cow. And it's an Indian uh, FinTech and they have such a niche market so they only they are focused on providing credit to dairy farmers in india but because dairy products are so incredibly important to the country's well-being um, and because of the changing climate and the financial crisis dairy farmers were lowest of the lowest of the you know rank to get a credit with regular banks and this company combined literally almost narrow data sets on the performance of cows in particular areas, charting it with weather graphs, um, with the financial background of the farmers. And they've really been uh, able to help hundreds of thousands of farmers with dairy uh, cows uh, to get credit. And because it is such a narrow sort of niche thing, they could actually learn really well uh, from it, how um, the model performed and then extrapolate it to other sectors. And I thought that was interesting because we tend to think of massive amounts of data and just think about it of the benefits only for very big things. But maybe there is something to be said for starting
3: small. Well, I and think it's actually a very interesting, uh, very interesting conclusion to, to to take. Where I think one of the things is that one of the challenges we have is actually getting the AI model to follow the right goals, right? So yes. optimization is not a numerical game. It's no. actually about optimizing for your own goals, right? Uh, which could be financial or could be commercial, but very often they're not just that. So it's uh, it's hard to teach that to a model, I would say. So there's still a lot of work to do there, I think, to yeah. to to do. But it's a very nice example.
1: So there are two other things that I, I think I'd like to still cover. We don't have that much time. One has to do with um, Spot BTC having an ETF that's going to launch on Euronext, something like this that you were telling me
3: about. Yeah. Uh, so ge- so generally, it's quite interesting. This uh, this was approved already uh, over two years ago. Uh, so they could actually launch their, uh, their Spot ETF uh, uh, on Bitcoin. Uh, but uh, the, of course, the conditions weren't so favorable over the past two years, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, some uh, major crypto players uh, falling over and uh, the market taking a big uh, nosedive. Uh, it's funny to see how they actually think that t- today is the right time to actually uh, to actually launch it. We did see some more initiatives uh, in this, uh, this spring, where there were more companies that actually announced their activities in Bitcoin, speeding up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious how that'll go. So I think there we're in a phase there where... I think there's a bit more, uh, there's the, 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 the storm seems to have calmed a little bit in the, in the, in the crypto space. Uh, but at the same time, we see as well that regulatory pressure is still firing up with uh, MyCar in Europe, for example, as well as that uh, in the US, uh, there's quite some persecution going on of some of the companies, as well as new regulations uh, being fired up. Uh, so it's still a, it's quite a challenging environment. But yeah. we do see an increasing level of optimism uh, from people in the crypto space.
2: Yeah, and the Bitcoin's coming up to halving again n- next year. So the real diehards, okay. I have some around me, are yeah. focusing and calling it. You know, this is the time to buy. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, before we start talking about Amsterdam FinTech Week, just uh, could one each of you give one sentence on uh, regulation, like DORA and and your thoughts on that? I'm saying one sentence so that we don't delve. Really deep into it because then we won't have enough no. time for f- I'll, answering I'll my one,
2: One-liner. I read about it. it and I thought, what the heck? Are we now getting regulation to do what you're supposed to do as a company? To so you have a business and you've got to check that you have a resilient organization and operational environment, that's what you're supposed to do. So I was really, I thought, oh, this is another invention to help consultants sell more stuff. Having said that, you know, there's always another side, so I always calm down again. The best benefit, the best takeaway for me is not be short, is that DORA regulation um, complies and compels financial institutions to share Uh, information and insights on cybersecurity and um, IT risks. Uh, And I think that is brilliant. That is very good because the only way we're going to survive in this space is by collaboration and rising above this idea that, you know, it's all competitive and we can't share. It's reputational risk, but the reputational risk is no longer for one institution. Everybody gets hit. It's poor now for the sector. So I think that is the one major benefit: sharing, you know, insights and uh, and threats.
3: And Don, yep. your view. Yeah so I think I think it's uh it's uh, I'm really happy that we actually took this step uh I do, do totally agree with Connie's initial uh hunch feeling that uh, of course you should be doing this uh you should not wait for any regulation to start doing this uh but why I'm mostly excited about the fact that we're doing this is that I think that the value chain that's creating financial services is becoming increasingly complex yes. and we actually haven't got the standardized language and processes to actually manage the risks throughout that value chain that properly. So I think most organizations are very well suited to deal with suppliers, but they can't look much deeper down in their value chain. We're not used to doing that. And I think it's something that we should be doing uh, if you want to stay in control over your operations. And I think from that perspective, that's, I think, for me, the biggest trigger that definitely relates also to cybersecurity, as uh, Connie was saying. But it's really about, you know... uh, uh, For example, what what if we were were setting this uh, call up with WhatsApp and WhatsApp would not work, right? What would actually happen in this process and what would be the consequences? Because WhatsApp might not look like a crucial part because it's like, you know, this funny chat thing and whoever relies on that for real processes. Well, it actually might at some point be part of a value chain that's actually causing real trouble if it doesn't work. Um, and so I think there's a lot of these kind of processes that are not, you know, they're not part of the payment core system. So they're not labeled as crucial, but in the end,
2: they are. People really don't are. show up
3: to work or exactly. they're just, you know, they're, they're just not, they're just not there to do the things that they should be doing. And things just, just stop Yeah. Uh, by little futile things, uh, right. What, what, what if every iOS system actually would crash overnight and people wouldn't wake then up and have time, a lot of uh, trouble. Uh, I don't know right yeah. let, let, let's um
1: move away from that and move yeah. towards amsterdam fintech week when is it what's happening what can people expect
3: yeah thank you so um um uh, I'll, I'll start it off connie is it okay yes please do um so i think what we're um uh it's the 12th to the 15th of september um uh, in amsterdam obviously Uh, What we are doing there is actually creating um, an event where the community, uh, the fintech community and the financial community in a broader sense, uh, uh, both in the Netherlands as well as uh, from outside, are joining together to actually discuss some of the prominent topics. Quite some of them have been also discussed here. Uh, You can definitely expect uh, generative AI, DORA, cybersecurity, the capital markets, uh, for example, on the agenda there. And what we're trying to do is actually make one place where both the larger players, smaller payers, investors, stakeholders like regulators and policymakers uh, and young talent can actually all find their way to meet each other, discuss the state of the market, uh, and hopefully also create a good atmosphere through which we can actually show what's going on in the Dutch fintech ecosystem and the European ecosystem to, uh, to tell the world.
2: Yeah, and and then here's our call and our appeal to all of you guys, listeners and viewers. Um, you know, we're going to uh, do this in a sustainable way. We want to have uh, people host um, events and and talks and chats as well at their own uh, premises or premises of their choice. So we very much uh, welcome people to reach out to us, to Don at, at Holland FinTech and to sort of say, well, I really think, you know, I'm in this space. I would love to help you host this. Uh, I have uh, my own little community. It literally is an open collaboration forum uh, this year on a number of days. So do reach out and if you have a great idea we'd love to hear from you and uh, don or i will get in touch with you and we'll make sure that um, you know you connect with other right people and we can make it an interesting topic on the agenda
1: that sounds great and i did hear that for investors you also have a session what day uh, and time slot was that
3: that's on the friday morning uh, the 15th
1: super so if you're an investor looking into the fintech space this is your chance. Um, have some ideas. So offline, we'll come back uh, to, to Donnie and Connie. Uh, to Donnie, hello. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie and Connie.
2: Call. Yes, Donnie Nicole. Yes. Donnie and <laughs> Nicole. Yeah, that, that's fine. Often people call me. Con. There are oh, no investment and the investment slot. Let me be very clear. Yes, it's Holland FinTech Week, but we live in an ecosystem. So if you are interested and you're not based in the Netherlands, we'd very much love to have you there.
1: Super. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone. It has been a pleasure to, to have you for this episode, and I will um, follow up after.
0: So, thank okay. you. Speak
2: Thanks, Thanks,
0: Liz. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a provoke media podcast in cooperation with FinTech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.